I am reading a fascinating book these days. It's uh, by John Ortberg. It's titled... What's the title again? It's, it's titled, Who is This Man? Fascinating book. Uh, he, he starts off and he lets us know what we, we already know, that throughout the history of the world there have been many men who have been great. Not by great, we don't mean intrinsically good. We mean folk who have made an incredible impact on the way we live. They, they've changed the landscape. Our lives are different today because they were here. Alexander the Great, or Napoleon, or Muhammad, or Louis Pasteur, or Abraham Lincoln, or, or, or Bill Gates. You know, they have made a, an impact on us. They've shifted life. And he says that there's one individual, though, who has shifted life more than anybody else, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, this is interesting when you think about Jesus because he died a criminal's death, very shameful and humiliating. 98% of everything we know about Jesus was about two and a half years. That's, that's it. In a very obscure place where communication wasn't real high, an itinerant preacher, and yet he's had that kind of an impact on the world. Never wrote a book he never uh, commandeered an army. He never started a revolt. He, he never uh, wrote a best-selling song. And yet, every time we open our calendars or we write the date, we are conscious of the fact, or at least should be, that this man's life is the dividing line in all of human history. Uh, Jesus, when he was around on earth, children were... Less than nothing. You know, dads had about eight days before they had to name the child. One of the reasons was during that eight days, they decided whether or not they wanted to keep the child. If for whatever reason, wrong gender, deformed, gave a headache that day, whatever else, that the kids could be left at the beach for the tide, they could be left in the woods for the wild animals, they could be left in the the town square for the uh, slave traders or the pimps. That was the, the plight of children. But yet Jesus introduces a wild concept when he says, suffer the little children to come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. His followers after him took this up and they went to the beach before the tide came in and they got the kids and they went to the woods before the wild animals came and they, they took the babies and they went to the town square before the slave traders came and they confiscated the children and they started the first orphanages and his followers have continued to do that. Uh, Jesus has altered the way we do life in our thinking of, of poor people. I mean, um, sick and dying. You know, one of his followers was so bothered watching lepers die off on the edge of town under the elements alone by themselves. And this idea, let's build a building that we can bring the, the lepers in. And yeah, we may catch it, but oh, oh well. Uh, but it's what Jesus would want us to do. And we can love on them and we can try to care for their needs. And perhaps they can die in dignity. This was the beginning of the first hospitals. It's why we've got a lot of hospitals today named St. Vincent and Mercy and Good Samaritan and St. Agnes and St. Christopher and St. Luke and St. Mary for this very purpose. Matter of fact, the Council of Nicaea, it's where we get the Nicene Creed, they decreed that every time a cathedral would be built, a hospice needs to be built right next to it. Change the way that the, the hurting were viewed in this world. One of Jesus' followers saw how soldiers were, their, their plight on the battlefield, and began what became known as the Red Cross. Uh, Jesus made a radical, radical, revolutionary uh, working with women who were considered less than second-class citizens, chattel. And yet Jesus invited them in to be his followers. 
A matter of fact, through the spirit of Jesus, you got the scriptures saying things like in Christ, there is neither male nor female. That was mind blowing. He said that we are co-heirs in Christ. Amazing. He said that, that husbands, you need to love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it started a, a radical, a radical revolution. Jesus had a huge impact on education. I mean, up to, you know, obviously only the rich were educated. But in 1647, first universal education law in the United States, in Massachusetts, 1647, it's titled the Old Deluder Satan Act. And the idea is that old deluder Satan would want nothing more than for people to remain in ignorance. And therefore, everybody should be taught to read primarily so they could read the word of God. Um, within six years of the time the Puritans uh, came, they started their first school. And in their first school, in their handbook, student handbook, it says this. It says, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well... The main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That is from the handbook of Harvard University. Then they formed Yale and William and Mary and Princeton and Brown. As a matter of fact, 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities in America were formed primarily for the reason of understanding and knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus made a huge impact, not just in education, but on science, believe it or not. Because the first pioneers of science were almost all Jesus followers. You've got Galileo and Copernicus and Louis Pasteur and Priestley and Pascal and Sir Isaac Newton and George Washington Carver. And they they were doing what they were doing because they thought that they could understand God through the universe in honoring their, their Savior, Jesus Christ. The first mechanical clocks were invented by monks who just wanted to know what time it was they needed to pray. Uh, Jesus had made a huge impact on the world we, we, we live in. So much so that there are the stories of his life, the Gospels, translated into 2,527 different languages. According to Ortberg, second most translated book is Don Quixote, translated into 60 languages. I mean, H.G. Wells, historian H.G. Wells, looks at the impact that Jesus made on history. And he says this. He says, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is, what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test... Jesus stands first. Well, it makes you stop, doesn't it? And say, what is so special about Jesus? We know about two and a half years of his life. What was so special about him that caused him to make such an impact? And you might skeptically ask, why should we trust Jesus? What's so special about Jesus as compared to these other religious leaders? Aren't they all equal? Well, the text we're going to look at this morning will answer that question. It's, it's, you need to know, it's probably the most famous text in Scripture. It's the most controversial text in Scripture. It's one of the most debated texts in Scripture. And it is the most defining, I believe, text in Scripture. If you got your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1 as we continue on in our series that we started last week. 
as you're turning. Again, just a, a reminder. It's 4 B.C. Uh, we're in Roman territory of Palestine today. We know it is the nation of Israel. Uh, the people, Jewish people are there, but they're not in control of themselves. They're under the, the thumb of Rome. It's been 400 years since God spoke to his people. That's a lot of time. Uh, it's been 500 years since there was an angel sighting. It's been 600 years since they governed themselves, the Jewish people. It's been 700 years since there was a verifiable miracle take place. It's been a long time. God's been quiet. And it's interesting, if you look at the very last book of the Old Testament, matter of fact, the very last few verses of the last book of the Old Testament, just before God went quiet, this is what he says. He says, one day, I'm going to send the forerunner to the Messiah. Fast forward 400 years in the temple, first part of Luke, we find Gabriel coming, being sent from God talking to an old man, Zechariah, saying, hey, I've got a message from you. Remember, last thing God said before he went quiet, I'm going to send a messenger. Now's the time. Your boy's going to be it. Well, Zechariah goes home. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Gabriel goes back to heaven, waiting his next assignment. Six months later, he gets it. And this is our, our text that we come to. Let's do this. We're going we're gonna to go through the text, just kind of explain it a little bit. Then we're going to look back again, make a couple of observations. Okay? Verse 26 of chapter 1. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, a couple of different things in like this. The sixth month... Uh, what is that about? Well, if you, I don't have it on the screen, but if you've got your Bible open, you can look back. Verse 24. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. This is the sixth month of her pregnancy. This is what's going on. Six months. God sent the angel Gabriel. We talked about him last week. He'd been, I don't know what he was doing for 500 years previous, but now last week he was going to visit Zechariah. Here he's going to go visit Mary. He's then going to go visit Joseph. Then he's going to go visit some shepherds. Then he's going to go back to Joseph. He's going to be a busy angel. His wings are going to be tired before this whole thing is done. He's going to be, he's going to be glad Jesus was born and over with now. Um, he goes to Galilee, to, uh, Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, this is the way marriage worked back then. A little bit different than the way it works today. When uh, a boy is 14, 15 years old, his parents begin looking for a bride for him. Now, a girl, as soon as she's able to have children, she becomes a likely candidate. So maybe they're hanging out in their, their village and they see Mary and they're starting to think. And so they go sit down with Mary's parents and they say, you know what? Look at Joseph. Man, he's a big, strapping, healthy guy. He's going to have some great, healthy kids one day. And people are going to, boy, any woman would be lucky to have Joseph. We noticed Mary and she, she might work. What do you think? And Mr. and Mrs. Mary would say, well, you know, I, we like Joseph and all, but you know, she's a great worker. And oh, man, she's so strong. She's our joy. And, she's, and if we lose her, oh, it's going to hurt us. And it's going to cost us financially, too. I said, okay, well, we don't think she's that good of a worker. But so that we're going to be go back and forth over until they determine a price. Then money will pass, change hands. One money changes hands, like today, most of the time. It's a legal agreement. A contract is drawn up, basically. Theoretically, your, your signatures are signed. And from that point on, Mary is married to Joseph. Now, they're not going to come together. They're not even going to be allowed to be together you know, privately for a year. 
Mary's hanging out with her mom who's going into an intense discipleship thing. This is what it is to be a mom and to be a wife and yada yada. Joseph, on the other hand, is in an intense discipleship deal of his own. How to get a house together and how to provide for your own. And so that's going on for about a year. And during this time, even though they haven't come together, they are legally married. If, in fact, Joseph was to die, Mary would be considered a widow. Mary and Joseph, neither one can just decide, well, I just want to break up because I don't like her. I found somebody else, whatever else. You can get a divorce, but it would be a legal deal. From that point on, they would be divorced people. This was, this was a legal binding thing. Well, after about a year, announced time, everyone knows the time, uh, Joseph gets his friends, his groomsmen together, and they go to Mary's house. And Mary's waiting, and she's all dialed up, and she's got her friends, her, her bridesmaids, and they go back to Joseph's house in a big parade, and they have a big party. And then after the party, everyone goes home, but Mary and Joseph stay there together, and they set up house, as it were. That's the way the marriage things work. Now, if you, this is really cool. If you're looking for some fodder for quiet time stuff, personal Bible study, let me tell you what to do. This is fantastic. Grab a spiral notebook, grab a pen, look at this first section, verses 1 through 25, and then compare it to this second section, verses 26 through 38. You will realize that Luke is a literary master. First section, Gabriel goes to Jerusalem. The epicenter of Jewish faith. The most important city in the area, Parnan. Second area, he goes to Nazareth. No one even knows where Nazareth is. That's why they've got to say Nazareth. You know, of Galilee. Oh, yeah. Maybe a couple hundred people there, a few hundred people. It's not, not real huge. He goes, he goes here from just a few inches from the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place on earth, to Nazareth, a city that is predominantly influenced by Gentiles, pagans. He goes to Zechariah, an old man. He goes to a little girl. He goes to a guy who cannot, he and his wife cannot have children because besides the fact that she's bearing, they're past the age of childbearing. He goes to a little girl who can't have children because she doesn't have a guy yet. He, he goes to a sophisticated priest man, a guy who, who understands and knows and is one of the CEOs of the nation to a little common peasant girl. Zechariah's prodigy is his, his heritage. He's blameless. He's from the, the family of Aaron. He, he's on all of his ways as far as the law goes. He's blameless. Mary. Just Mary. I mean, it's just, it goes back and forth. The Holy Spirit's involved in both children. The names are thrown out. It, it is, it's it's an, an amazing thing. Questions on both sides. And so that's, that's what, what's happening. The angel goes to her and says, Greetings, which basically just means hello. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I always thought that made Mary sound a bit ditzy, doesn't it? She wondered what kind of, I wonder what kind of, you know, duh, Mary, you got an angel here. Um, but it reminds us, that, that we think of scripture angels are a dime a dozen, you know, it's, you know, they're like poker chips in Vegas. They're just all over the place. No, no, there hasn't been one in a long time, except for the one that came to Zechariah six months earlier. Probably would, would not have traveled to her at this point. And so Mary, when it says she's greatly troubled, it's greatly confused. I don't know if you've ever passed out and then you start to wake up and... You don't know what's going on. What's go- you're, you're, you're scrambling. You're panicking. Or maybe you get turned around in bed at night and you try to get out. You're getting the wrong side and stuff's not where it's supposed to be. And you are greatly confused. And so Mary here is doing what you and I would do. 
She's looking at the situation. She's wondering. She's been out in the sun too long. She's sitting down. She's thinking, now, who do I know? She's putting through everything that she's seeing, that she's hearing, that she's experiencing through her grid. Everything she's experienced in the past, everything she's heard, everything she knows. And it's just not computing. She's not getting it. She doesn't understand. What is the deal? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to his son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Lots and lots and lots of stuff in there. Mary knows right off that this baby is going to be a little bit different. Because she's not able to name it. The parents always name the child. When the parents name the child, that is a sign of their authority over the child. That is a a, a sign to an extent, I guess, of their superiority. Names were not, well, I like the sound of that. It works good with their last name. None of that. The names have special meaning. And so when you choose a name, you choose the meaning to attribute to that child. And you are really choosing that child's identity, who they are, what they're going to be. And the angel says, oh, no, Mary, not this time. You, you, you don't set the identity of this. This, this kid's identity is already set. It's, it's Jesus. It's Jehovah saves. And, and you, now, parenthetically, how many times, how many folk do you know, how many times are we guilty of it? We are willing to take Jesus, but really we want to set his identity. We will, you know, he said some things in scripture that we don't like, we're embarrassed about, we don't understand, and so we want to cut those out, forget those. He said other things tangentially, but we think they're fantastic, and so we want to underline, and, and we want to set parameters about what he can ask of us and what he can't ask of us. We want to determine those things. And the angel, if he would come to us, he'd say the same thing to us. He said to Mary, you don't set the identity of Jesus. It's, it's set. He is who he is. It's kind of like love him or leave him, but you don't mess with his identity. That's really important, I think, for the modern church. We don't alter the identity of Christ. It is what it is. So, so Mary asks, how will this be? She asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, this is interesting. Mary questions the angel. Zechariah questioned the angel. Look back if you got your Bibles. Well, one eighteen. Ze- angel just said, Zechariah, you and your wife Elizabeth can have a child, yada yada. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Well, Mary asked the same kind of thing. Uh, you know, how's this working? I'm 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 young. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Zechariah kind of gets a slap on the tongue? And silence, judgment. But Mary kind of looks like she gets a blessing. And you go, well, what is that about? You know, I mean, was, was the angel just having a bad day, you know? <laughs> it stinks to be Zechariah. He got him on a bad day. You know, maybe he came through a thunderstorm or something and he was angry. Maybe he doesn't like old people. I don't know what the issue was. I, but, but Mary, maybe just a cute, innocent, sweet little girl. And the angel's just feeling bad. Oh, she's so sweet. And then Mary's got that angel eating out of the palm of her hand. Uh, yeah. No, probably not. If you look at exactly what Zechariah says, and you look at exactly what Mary says, and you look at what Gabriel says, and you look at the full context, we see, we're reminded that there are two ways you can ask a question, right? There are two question askers. 
there are those people who are asking a question, but they really don't want the answer. They're not looking for truth. They think they've got the truth. Matter of fact, they're going to ask the question just to make your side, the other side, whatever side they're asking about, look silly and ridiculous. They're asking in a pejorative tone. You know, it's trying to share with someone about God. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Where did Cain get his wife? Huh? 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 Answer me that. Huh? Yeah, or, or, oh, you talk about God creating. Blah, blah. Oh, well, how come there's light the first day, but he doesn't create the sun until the fourth day? Answer me that one. Huh? Answer. Good questions. But the guys who are asking it that way really are not looking for an answer. They've made up their mind. They know. They understand. You can ask a question after the manner of Zechariah. Sometimes we think we're being so, um, I don't know, wise or sophisticated, asking such questions. But really, we've already got the answer in our heart and mind. We're really not looking for an answer. There's no answer that will satisfy us because we really don't have a question mark there. Or you can ask a question after the matter of Mary. It already said she was bewildered. She was confused. This, this is so, so important. Asking questions is not an absence of faith. Not understanding does not mean you don't have faith. Matter of fact, it's sometimes it's just common sense. The, the issue is this. When we put our questions above our confidence in God... That's the Zechariah thing. But when we turn it around and we say, you know what, I don't understand this. This blows my mind. I can't figure this one out. But I know God has got things taken care of. I'm still trying to get the answer here, but God has got this figured out. There is, is the Mary style. So, so Mary asks the angel this, and the angel says in verse 36, even... Elizabeth, your relative, we don't know exactly what she was, cousin, aunt, who knows, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her six months. She's already six months along, Mary. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Okay, first observation. Faith begins with an understanding of the identity of Jesus. Faith begins with an understanding of the identity of Jesus. You know, Luke could have started his gospel when Jesus was 30. The miracles of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the wild things that Jesus did. I mean, why not? Most of all we know about Jesus happened during that era. Why does he start back here? Because he knows that, that the identity of Jesus explains why he said what he said. And why he made those audacious claims. And how he was able to do those things. Just understanding Jesus as a good teacher and maybe some sort of a miracle worker. That's not good enough. Luke, Luke takes us back. This is why you need to know his identity. He was born of a virgin. Now, bottom line is, if he was born of a virgin... You've got to think on it and say, well, okay, I guess who was the father? Well, he lets us know God was his father, making Jesus deity. Now, uh, the world religion, this is amazing because all the other world religious founders, none of them even claim deity. Muhammad doesn't claim it. Confucius doesn't claim it. None of them claim it. So even those world religions that kind of like Jesus, you know, the Quran is, it likes Jesus. Jesus is, is nice. But they all will fight this idea about Jesus being God, being deified. Because it makes sense, right? If Jesus is God, that kind of gives him the trump card. And suddenly what he says kind of blows the rest of us away. 
And suddenly, it's, we're not on an equal, equal realm anymore. Jesus is beyond us. And so everybody outside the church will fight this idea of the deity of Jesus being born of a virgin. Are you serious? Please. Problem is, it's even worked its way into the church. Rob, Rob Bell, former uh, senior pastor at Myers Hill in, in Grand Rapids, he wrote a book several years back called Velvet Elvis, and this is what he says in it. He says, if we learned that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry, and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw into appeal to the followers of the Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. And and what if, as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the Gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language at that time, the word virgin could mean several things. And what if you discover that in the first century, being born of a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant for the first time she had intercourse? Would that make any difference? And Bell goes on in his book to say, now I believe in the virgin birth, I'm just saying it's not that big of a deal. Well, it's a huge deal. I had a, a buddy, pastor, who, who read his book and came sat down. He was shaken. And he said, is, is it true? I said, well, is, is, what part of what he's saying true? He says, does the word, I mean, can it mean something other than virgin? In Luke, verse 26, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Yes, it can. The word can be translated, interpreted as a young woman. It can be. Now, that's not its primary interpretation, its primary meaning, but yes, it can. But context, this, this is so true with an awful lot of, of Greek words and a gazillion of, of Hebrew words, which is pretty ambiguous. Context always determines how we interpret. If, in fact, it means young woman, look at Look, Mary's, Mary's question in verse 34 is nonsensical. The angel just says you're going to have a baby. Well, how will this be, Mary asks the angel, since I'm a young woman? Well, Mary, young women are the ones that have babies. See, that's how it can be. And the angel's answer is nonsensical, if that's what it means. In, in Matthew, you got to check this out. Matthew, chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I wish, I, didn't, I did not add this on the screen, but check this out. Matthew 1, verse 23, this is what it says. It says, this was done to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. And then he's going to quote Isaiah seven fourteen. This is the quote, check it out, Matthew 1, 23. That's what he says. The virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, for he shall save his people from their sins. That word, virgin... Matthew 1.23 is a very technical term and it can only mean somebody who has not been sexually active. It can only mean that. Only. Now, this is, when you, when you, when you look at this, you look at scripture. If, in fact, Jesus did not have God as his father, there's a lot of scripture we got some questions with. John 1, right? 
where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then same was in the beginning with God in verse 14. He says, and the word, the one who was with God and the word who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. This is why Jesus can say, because God is his father. I and the father are one. Jesus is at his last trial before his crucifixion. And check this out. Folk have said all he really does said that he was deity. But please. Um, but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Because I guess he was afraid Jesus would lie. Uh, Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Look at Jesus reply. Yes, it is as you say. Uh, the Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Don't get me wrong, the Sanhedrin did not like the idea that he was claiming to be the Messiah. But they could live with that. But claiming to be the Son of God, that's blasphemy. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God... Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Uh, You got you're taking notes. John 17, 11, Jesus is praying and he says, Father, would you would you restore to me the glory I had with you before the world began? You can't get away from it. If, in fact, you're going to not deny that Jesus is deity and that he was born of a virgin, it's not on the basis of any text or scripture or language or culture. You have to do what Bell did. Basically, just deny scripture. Well, it was just a little bit of mythologizing they threw in. Well, okay, if that's where you want to go, then I suppose the miracles. What about those? Well, you know, that's probably a little mythologizing as well. Some of those are pretty, I need to embellish some of these stories. And a sinless life, who really lives a sinless life? Well, probably a little more mythologizing. And of course, the resurrection, right? Mythologizing on steroids. And so you ask yourself, uh, mythologizing, what else? What's another synonym for, for that? Is it not lying? These guys, these, these, these New Testament authors are nothing but spin doctors. And yet, every one of them would die a very painful death because of what they wrote, what they believed. I think it takes an awful lot of faith to not believe that. Listen, if you believe there's a God who can create the whole world, ex nihilo, with one, one word, why is this a big deal? It, it, it's not. It's folk not wanting Jesus to be God, because if he is. Now, this is, this is amazing to me when you really think about this. Omniscient, omnipotent, eternal, infinite, sovereign God comes into the world, not as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem, as a holy embryo I mean in marriage this is God single cell God creator of the universe creates his mom and is now dependent on the womb of this 13 year old kid this ought to at least influence our views on, on, on abortion I would think Listen, this is why this is so huge. This is why I think Luke puts this here. Whatever you believe about a creation evolution, about Jesus coming back one day when he's going to do that, about communion or about baptism or about Calvinism or about Arminianism or premillennialism or church polity or tongues, or, those are important things that are in the scripture. We need to deal with those things. But wherever you stand on those things, those are not damnable. But understanding the deity of Jesus, that is... You, you need to understand who he is. He is the son of God. Now, 
faith begins with an understanding of his, of his identity. But faith continues, or faith is lived out, or faith is completed in an understanding of your own identity. I was a little boy, and I know this is a sexist comment. Please don't send me any emails. Um, there was the greatest cut down you could have when I was a little boy, depraved as I was, um, to be called a little girl. It's like, oh, no, I could handle anything but be called a little girl. It's like, ah, it was, it was a lack of courage and wimpishness and all these kind of things. But look at this little girl. Uh, Frederick Buchner, who, who writes in his character sketches book about this very time when Gabriel was to visit Mary. And, and he says this, he says, she struck him as hardly old enough to have a child at all, let alone this child. But he had been entrusted with a message to give her and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named, who he was to be, and something about the mystery that was to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. As he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath the great golden wings, he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation hung on the answer of a girl. Mary was not stupid. She knew. I get pregnant. Before I come along with Joseph, how in the world am I going to explain that? Boy, a scandal. My parents are not going to believe this. Would you, would you believe this? Your daughter comes up, you're not believing this. My, my boyfriend, or husband, he's not going to buy this. And he didn't, according to Matthew 1. Not until Gabriel steps in. He wasn't buying it either. He was a righteous guy. Let's face it, that's a big story. On top of that, she would, according to the law, she could be stoned. She could be killed because to be unfaithful was a capital offense. Her life was on the line. Her reputation was shot. Yes, all future generations would call her blessed, but the generation she lived in did not. They had names for her. Blessed was not one of them. Her reputation was done. Now, this is kind of wild. I mean, think of this. This 13-year-old kid, if this is going through your mind, what are you thinking? You know, uh, Sarah's down the block. I think she would do this better. What does she say? She says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. If you're the Lord's servant, what else can you do? May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Listen, faith is very important. It starts with understanding the, the deity, the identity of Jesus. But you've got to know, the demons know that. They know Jesus is God. But you've got to have the second piece of, of the puzzle. Faith is lived out with understanding your identity. Are you his servant? Let's face it, most of us are servants to ourselves. Uh, now, this Messiah... Why did he have to be deity? I mean, Moses wasn't deity. And Abraham wasn't deity. And, and, and King David wasn't deity. Why, 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 what is so doggone important that this couldn't be done through a normal prophet or Messiah or even the angel? Or so? How come God himself had to visit? Well, this Messiah knows that his foe is a little bit bigger than, than the Philistines. That his enemy is a little more powerful than, than Rome. What he's going after is, is the evil that lurks in every one of our hearts that has us all condemned. And so as he grows, he says things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He says, I've come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. 
He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He, he looks at his apostles one day, and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem to be betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles, and they're going to flog me, and they're going to put me to death, but I'm going to race after three days. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the temple guards come to get him, and Peter pulls his sword, and Jesus stops him, doesn't he, and says, put it away. Don't you know? I've got myriads of angels at my disposal. I can call and solve this, but this is the way it needs to be. I've got to do this. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. No greater love has a man than this, to lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross, and they're all a bit confused like Mary was. And after... He rises from the dead, though. They would recognize what he was saying. They would recognize the enemy he came to wipe out. And they would would say, in his own body, on the cross, he bore our sins. That we, being dead to sin, should be alive to righteousness. Paul would go on and Paul would say that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, which means deity and I'm his servant, you'll be saved. And scripture says at that point, all all things become new. We are adopted into God's family. All of the sins, all the stuff that we have that separate us from God are gone. But here's the question. Are you his servant? Have you surrendered your life to that, to him? Or basically are you your own servant? You know he's God, that's a nice thing. You come give him homage a little bit once in a while, but still... You're on your own. You need to know you can't buy this. You don't get good enough to earn it. Don't. I'm going to get my act together. That's great. I'm glad you should get your act together. But that doesn't make you a believer. It comes to that point of saying, I am tired of being my own master. I, I, I thank you for, for, for dying on the cross for my sin, for coming with a God-sized task that only God could do to free me from the powers of hell, to free me from myself, to free me from the condemnation that awaited me. I surrender my life to you. Right where you sit, you know what? You can commit your life to him. You can surrender your life to him right now. There's a little card. We're going to pray in just a moment. But there's a little card in the pew in front of you. A yes card. If you were to take that, Fill it out. Bring it to that Get Connected table afterwards if you surrender your life to them. Hand that in. They have something special for you. Uh, a Bible, some uh, what to do next, those kind of things. You, you'll want to take advantage of that. But take a moment to pray with me, would you? And I want to give you that opportunity if, in fact, you have never entrusted your life to Christ. You've never realized why he had to be God, why it's, it's mandatory that he's God. You've never surrendered your life to him. Up to this point, you would not be his servant. You can commit your life to him now. Lord, thank you. For sending the solution to our dilemma that we didn't even know we had. For leaving the glories of heaven, Lord Jesus. For becoming made in likeness as a man. That we might be made in likeness as your children, Father, brothers, Lord. And God, as we would go forth today...
We go forth into the worlds that you've called us to go into. Would you remind us, would we be reminded on a regular basis of who you are, who we serve? And would you remind us, Lord, of who we are as your servants, willing to do whatever you would call us to do as your servants? I would ask this, that those who see us in our families and in this world would know that you're real. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.